Mama. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Spooky noises. Get inside my head. No, it's my uh, Freddie Mercury. Oh, that's good. Like yeah, it. man. Love, love Queen. Yeah. Who doesn't love Freddie Mercury? I don't know. You know, sometimes hmm. I feel so bad for Jake. <laughs> because, because he has to edit this in a Leave way. Leave it in, Jake. Leave it in. Leave this all in. It, it all stays in. Jake, leave it all in. Leave it all it, in. It all stays in. It always all Get stays inside in. inside my hand. I never meant to sound him. Poor Jake. Poor, poor Jake. All right. Jake, roll the tape. Welcome to the Mad Scientist Podcast. This week's episode, Alien Odyssey Part 1. Chapter 2. How it all began. Phyllis's strange behavior after I met her started in a serious way in September 1986. It began in her sleep. Without waking, she took off her nightgown, wadded it into a ball, and threw it across the room. Then she remained peacefully under the covers until daylight. Upon awakening, she was mystified about what had happened to her nightgown. Subsequently, she found it under a bureau on the other side of the room. It was disturbing. She didn't even recall being restless. The next night it happened again. This time it was on the radiator. On the third night she began talking in her sleep. As the nights progressed her talking changed from incoherent mumbling to clear sentences. Throwing the nightgowns continued for another week. I began asking her questions. Her responses no longer sounded like ordinary sleep talk because they were too clear in pronunciation and meaning. Every morning she recalled nothing of the conversations. She didn't believe me when I told her about them, but she was still mystified about the nightgowns. Finally, I bought a tape recorder and began recording the nightly conversations. We made our first tape on September 22nd. And so begins, at least after the first chapter, The Alien Odyssey, a true story by John M. Maloney. The book that we are going to be talking about tonight on the Mad Scientist Podcast. Mm. All right. I don't know what that noise was, Marie. I was just saying, mm. I didn't know if you were going to introduce us. I, oh, I, oh, oh, well, I'm Chris Cogswell, and this is my co-host, Marie Mayhew. Forget it. It's moot now. Let's move on. We'll move on. <laughs> just teasing. Um, I actually was reading, I was reading ahead a little bit when I said, mm, I was reading on some of my favorite chapters of this book. And the craziest thing about this book is like, every time I read it, like, Every time I pick it up, I, I consciously try and dismiss it. And I'm, I'm, you know, whether it's kind of the wacky cover or the self publication genre feel of it. And then I just start to read it. And then I just sort of get sucked in a little bit. And then it's like, I'm like three chapters along and I'm, I'm, and I'm starting to, every time I read it, I buy into it more. It's interesting, right? It's one of those books that, (sighs) yeah, it's one of those books that has a, it does not have a great looking cover. Mm, let's, yes. So yeah. to begin with, let's kind of introduce this book. Yes. So this is a book by Mr. John M. Maloney of Claremont, New Hampshire. And as we're going to find out in telling the story of, I don't know if there's a city in America this man hasn't lived in. Mm-mm. Based on his life, uh, he led an amazing life, honestly. This is how he describes himself. John M. Maloney 
retired former journalist and UFO investigator for NICAP, has written an astounding account of his true life experiences married to a woman who channeled aliens. Yeah. That's just the beginning of his, of his introduction to himself. And actually, if you look at some of the other interviews with or his book got was reviewed and things like that. So this is one, a review, Alien Odyssey by John Maloney, review by Mac Tonys. So, quote, Maloney's self-published memoir is a succinct look at alleged channeled alien communications as experienced by Maloney and his late wife. Within a field that has been relentlessly marginalized by the mainstream scientific establishment, the implications of channeling have been neatly brushed aside by the ufological community. Thus, commentary on perceived channeled communications are generally dismissed more vigorously than the numerous contact details of the likes of George Adamski and Daniel Fry. Maloney's Alien Odyssey offers us a personal glimpse of the phenomena that, while shedding no real insight on his reality, reveals its human dynamic with evident sincerity. I, I think that is the best review of a book I've ever read. Honestly, that it is, it perfectly captures both the problem with this book mm-hmm. and the, and the reason why you've never heard of John Maloney as a listener. Yes. Even those of you who have a significant interest in the UFO field have likely never heard of this man, even though he was involved in the founding of NICAP. He was there for the beginnings of MUFON practically. He was one of the first people doing real investigations of this, of these phenomena, of these cases. And yes. yet, because of his experiences later on in his life, he was marginalized, I would, I would argue. His view, his voice was kind of pushed, pushed to the back burner to the point that he had to self-publish this book. Yes. You know? I think what's interesting about this that probably happens in any science field is there are pet theories or more commonly held theories and beliefs and everything else that doesn't fit into that narrative for a given point of time is takes a backseat in the bus. Right. And some of them are still, some of them are still totally, I don't want to say legit, but are, are viewed with uh, credulity. And then the further back you get, you know, the further away you are from being seen as a serious, uh, serious contender and someone who's got a serious voice on the, on the subject. And it's interesting to take something like the study of UFOs, which is now coming more into the forefront with sciences, but seeing again, like to your point, this, this man who has dedicated his life to it, who has documented things in a really pretty clear way and obviously had a lot of passion around the subject um sort of be dismissed systematically dismissed no i mean not sort of be dismissed he was we're gonna get much so we're gonna get into it we're gonna get into my own attempt to learn more about this person and his work and 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 the just the case itself really yeah and his involvement with with ufo groups but the fascinating thing for me with this is that his view or, or the this book was published in 2002 the stories that he's talking about occurred in the 80s to the late 90s around there until his wife phyllis unfortunately passed away his second wife phyllis his first wife virginia and him separated earlier in in their lives but at the time around 2002 and even really up until uh, i would say a couple of years ago the view of UFOs or alien contact as a non-physical phenomena 
as something like a skinwalker type thing that we think about today, that was that was taboo even within the UFO community. If it if it didn't have an engine and metal doors, people didn't want to hear about it. Yes. The serious investigators did not touch those cases. And it has changed with the with the publication of Hunt for the Skinwalker. It has changed with the internet, with people getting more information on these cases. And it's also changed with the increased reliance and acceptance of contactee reports. And so the blurring of the lines between if if they're able to come into your bedroom at night, seemingly, and and phase through walls and whatever, stop time, all these other weird things supposedly that they can do, then where mm-hmm. do you draw that line? What becomes impossible? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. And that is really... That is really where I think this book is so fascinating is that this is an untold UFO story. It is an untold alien contact account. I guarantee you've never heard of it unless you have a copy of this book or you've or, or I have cornered you in a bar much to your chagrin. This is a brand new story. So let's I'm so excited, Marie. I can't wait to tell this story. I'm so excited. I know you are. I think this is awesome. Okay. So in this blacklisted from every from every UFOlogy forum out there. Yeah, okay. Yeah, no, we're no, we run us out. They run us out of town on a They rail. blacklisted us. Okay. Yeah. So, Marie. <laughs> yes. Let's let's start this story off with how it came to our attention. Yes. Really how it came to my attention first. Yes. And then how I introduced it to you and Scott and Forrest and Tess. Yeah. <laughs> one I, fate, one yes. faithful night. So this story is actually originally it's set in in the later part of the story. It's set in Claremont, New Hampshire, a small town in New Hampshire, in the Connecticut River Valley that honestly, I absolutely love. Mm-hmm. Claremont, New Hampshire is a small city. It's a city. It became a city in 1947 and actually officially got that that title for itself before that it was a town originally settled in 1762 incorporated as a town in 1764 the area has always been settled as far as we can tell from archaeological information at least as long as peoples have been in this part of america originally it was part of the part of the area controlled by the algonquin tribes initially the penacook and abenaki peoples had it until the Algonquin came and they kind of they kind of merged together. And the area is very popular because, or has always been popular because it's on the Connecticut River. The Connecticut River travels all the way from, basically from Canada all the way down to Connecticut and down into the Atlantic Ocean. So it is a very important water thoroughfare if you want to get to this part of the country. Yeah. Because of that, it's always been, you know, it's, it's very early settled for America, you know, settled, settled in 1764. Hmm. It rather settled in 1762, but still really brought initially as an area for farming, for milling, for industry, for water industry. Right. Yeah, I was going like to say so it's many, a mill town. It is like 100% a mill so town. So many in Connecticut yeah. and uh, New Hampshire. Vermont, it's a mill town. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. The city became, the city actually became very wealthy during 
the during around the like late 20th century, the city was very, very wealthy. It had rivers that were very, you know, mobile, they're very fast moving rivers. So there's a lot of energy there to harness for mill work and things like that. And it stayed prosperous until really around the 1930s, 1940s like so many other mill towns. Mm-hmm. And at that time, the jobs really started to to go away. And then Claremont kind of kind of held on until around the 70s or, or, or 80s. And eventually that was when the last of the big, big companies that were using kind of mill work and textile manufacturing, that was right around the time that that company closed its doors and the city or the town, city, whatever you want to call it, has really never been the same since that day. Yeah, all of and, its infrastructure and yeah. commerce was driven by that. That's sad. Absolutely. Now, Claremont is, like I said, it's a small, small city. It has a population of around 14,000 people. It has a population density of 300 people per square mile. So it's relatively populous, but still quite, quite rugged. And there's a lot of areas I can attest personally a lot of areas of Claremont that are that are just forest. That you can you know, spread untouched out. Forest. You absolutely can spread out. Do you know, really quickly, can I just do a quick tangent? Sure. Do you know what made me think of Claremont in a movie that I was watching recently? What? Hereditary. I oh, don't yeah. know. I don't know if like I I think it was supposed to be more like I don't I want to say like Utah, but it felt like upstate New York when I first started to watch it. I was and then and then when they did the treehouse, I was like, well, there we're we're like it's we're we're in a we're in Chris's book. Pretty much, yeah. I was pretty sure that it was in uh, the the upper Midwest because they mention the use of the West for uh, something. I'm not going to mention, I'm not going to spoil the story, Marie. Don't spoil the story. No, but I just like I don't know where my and of course like that was my last, you know, you know, rational thought with that movie i was like oh this sort of reminds me like oh my god you know <laughs> um anyways but that's sort of the same feel like it feels very uh claremont is it's it is rural i mean it's you 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 may not have neighbors too very close you've got a lot of land it stays in the family for generations yeah. right you know your local constable your local sheriff it's seemingly like from all the stories and from what we've read and from what I've heard, it seems very close knit. Yeah, it definitely is. Well. Now, I originally found out about Claremont was introduced to Claremont because of my wife, Katie, who at the time was my girlfriend. We went up there for Christmas. The second Christmas, I think that we spent as a couple, Katie's family invited me up with them to Claremont, New Hampshire to the farm, really the farm it is land that is zoned for farmland, but has not been used for farmland for quite some time. But the basically the big, night, beautiful cabin that Katie's grandma and grandpa owned and lived in. Oh, the farm. Like, really quick, were you like, the farm? You're all Staten Island. You're like, farm? I got uh, off some farm. The most, rural I had ever, the most rural I had ever been to before that was the Poconos in Pennsylvania. <laughs> Where, you know, there was a pizza place down the road owned by a guy who lived in New York most of the time. You know, so like I I didn't exactly go very far. We had a Super Nintendo in the in the lodge. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't not exactly rugging it. 
or, or uh, whatever. But so this town is, it's beautiful. I, I fell in love with it the minute we went up there. But when we went up there, though, you know, we're same stuff, sitting around the fire, talking about old family stories and, and all that stuff. And Katie's grandma and the, the family are like, oh, Chris is into UFOs and weird stuff. Tell him about the alien guy down the hill. And so I was given this this amazing story about this guy who lived down the hill. I think he was still alive at the time who wrote this wacky book talking about how his wife telepathically communicated with aliens and they had to go across the country basically averting alien disaster and trying to, you know, trying to teach these aliens human customs and how to communicate when channeling. And it is just an, a super interesting story. And it's super interesting to me that that's like one of your first interactions with her family. And they were like, so what are we going to talk to to Katie's new boyfriend about? Oh, he likes aliens. Yeah. It's, well, it's Nana, really. Nana, tell him the alien story. It's so interesting. And I love that. So I then, so, okay, so I was given this book and I actually had read it Mm -hmm. earlier before, but when I was starting this podcast, Katie's grandma actually sent me the book again. I asked her to, and she sent me it with this note in it. So the note goes, Chris, hope this has enough material for a podcast episode. Seems to me he started out quite a normal person with some unusual adventure related to World War II. And from there gradually spins out until by the end, the addendum he is obviously overtaken by aliens in a post-life regression episode in true La La Land. Oh, well, have fun. Looking forward to the result. Best grandma. Anna. Extremely cute. An extremely sweet thing that she sent it to me at my request. So cute. Okay, so here's where stuff starts to get interesting from my personal perspective. Mm-hmm. I started living at Katie's grandma's cabin in Claremont for about a year and a half. Katie got into vet school here in Minnesota. I was still finishing up my PhD in New Hampshire or in in Massachusetts, rather in Boston, Northeastern. And I needed someplace to live for cheap and store all my stuff because we weren't going to move all my stuff over there yet because I needed most of my stuff. And Katie's grandma's house was like the the obvious choice, you know? So we, yeah, so I, I moved hours on my, away from, from two hours Still, away from Boston. It's free. It's obvious. It was free. I was mostly writing my thesis. It was a no brainer. And honestly, I love the area. I love the house was so excited to live there for a little bit. So lived there for, for a year and a half, like I said, and during that year and a half is when I got involved in the astonishing research Corps, And when we really started talking about all this weird stuff. So Yes. In doing that, I think the first email even I sent to Scott, I said, you know, I'm living on a I'm living on land that supposedly is like a UFO hotspot. <laughs> and he's like, how did you get this email address? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's like, oh, my God, another one. So what what I found out living there, eventually it became it became, you know, just in being interested in this stuff and wanting to learn more about it and everything else. I started looking into the book more and actually became friendly with the neighbor who lived down the hill from us, whose father actually built the home that Katie's grandma eventually bought. So they actually lived in that house. Originally that was like their, their family home growing up that his father had built by hand. 
know, it's an amazing, amazing house, an amazing story. And so the guy would come up occasionally and talk to me, you know, whatever. And we talked about the podcast and talking about this weird book. And I asked him, you know, have you ever heard anything about this John M. Maloney guy? And he had heard of him. He knew of him from the town and everything. He knew he was a bit of an eccentric, whatever. Mm-hmm. He then, I, I, he gets a copy of the book because now he's, he's delighted that this book exists. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he comes over one day, super excited with a part of the book highlighted. He, he, the part that's highlighted is this quote. There was a case in Claremont where several people who did not know each other all reported a craft passing low below the top of green mountain on the north side of town and hovering nearly an hour over a field on the east side of the mountain. The sighting took place about 1 a.m. and was reported to the local police department. We interviewed all of the witnesses, each of whom assumed they were the only ones who saw it, end quote. <laughs> that, was, that was exciting and fascinating for the neighbor because the only thing that he could remember being a kid living on that land that seemed a little odd was his father one morning saying that he had seen a UFO in the field. That he had seen something hovering for about an hour. He watched it hovering there around the field, seeming like it was looking for something. For an hour. Yeah. And this is before, you know, people had access to cameras and things, right? Yeah. And he, this guy was floored that this case, and and let me, let me, let me be straight too. Green Mountain, where this is, he says, Below the top of Green Mountain. Green Mountain is the mountain that I lived on. He's describing a craft that the neighbor down the hill, my neighbor, his father saw, always said that he saw everything else. For an hour hanging out in proximity to where you were living. And actually, we lived on the other side of Green Mountain. So this this, this thing was there for for some time, for an hour or more. Now... Maybe it was looking for cows. Now, looking into more detail, this is actually noted in a case for NICAP. So, quote, 1968, Claremont, New Hampshire, dome-shaped object hovers 10 foot above ground. Early on the morning of July 30th, 1968, a couple, names on file at NICAP, finished working on their new house in the Roberts Hill district of Claremont, New Hampshire, and were preparing to retire. Some lights in the field back of the house, apparently about 200 feet away, attracted their attention and they went to the window to see what was going on. To their astonishment, they saw a dome-shaped object hovering about 10 feet off the ground. The underside of the object was illuminated, and the light covered an area about 20 feet in diameter on the ground. Since they were in a fairly isolated area with no telephone, they had just moved into the house. The couple became frightened. They could hear yeah. a buzzing sound like a transformer coming from the object. The time was about 2.30 a.m. Mr. and Mrs. John Maloney of the New Hampshire NICAP subcommittee investigated the report in close cooperation with the Claremont police. In their interview with the couple, they learned that the UFO had remained over the field until about 4.30 a.m. Then the humming became very loud. The light grew to a high intensity and the UFO moved away at a low angle upward to the west and disappeared. In the garage, the family dog whined loudly as the UFO departed. Two separate groups of witnesses have been located by the subcommittee. The report seems to indicate beyond a reasonable doubt that something unexplained was in the area. 
end quote. Now, here's the thing. That does not include my neighbor's father's recollection. So that's separate from. They mentioned two. No, no, no. This is the same case, but they mentioned two um, separate groups of witnesses. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. This is so a third who, witness. Who was the other witness? Did you, did you find out? I don't know. It's the names are on file at NICAP, but you know, uh, personal personal identifying information has to be protected. All that stuff. Right, right, right. What's interesting to that about that to me is that Maloney had cooperation from the police. And seemingly, yeah, and seemingly like he gathered um, a sizable amount of information on it with with some, again, some credibility behind it. I also find it interesting, again, if I may just interject with this, that you, again, it's like some Stephen King short story that you're up there, you know, in fall wearing, you know, how, what I imagine like plaid flannel, you know, jackets stomping around this, you know, kind of quiet, very rural area, and it's, it's an alien hotspot. And you're doing all this research into Skinwalker and stuff, dude. And then this, you know, and then the, your neighbor's like, oh, yeah, by the way. Yeah. Now, this is not... So weird. This isn't even the best. This is by far not the best case that he investigated. He investigated others that had physical witness, or physical evidence, I should yep. say. This is um, the one in your backyard. Burn right? marks radiation burns, things like that. So his contribution to UFO history is significant. Yeah. But you've yeah. never heard of him. No. And the thing that dawned on me is the movie communion with Christopher Walker walking yeah. came out in like, I want to say 86, 87. And it was a huge deal. Right. And so it was yeah. sort of like, that's, the same time, sort of within the same window that a lot of his stuff was happening with him, but he received none of, none of the same um, coverage or none of the same, it's, you know, nothing even equivalent to it. Yeah. Now, here's yeah. the thing with this story. Mm -hmm. It is part of a part of UFO history that's known as a, I hesitate to call it a flap. It's it's like the golden age of UFO cases. The golden era. These all occurred in the early 60s to late 70s, for the most part. Mm -hmm. The stories that he talks about in his book happened after that, of course, with his with with Phyllis. However, this is part of this is all a part of the Mothman story, really. It's part of the overarching story that John Keel tells in the Mothman prophecies, the the book, not necessarily in the movie, although the movie's amazing. Yeah, Richard Gere. Mm. Come on, Marie. Mm. The, it's all right. The book itself talks about how at there's this no time, Christopher Walken. That's true. He's not. He's no Christopher Walken. It's fine. We're gonna we're gonna move past it, Marie. It's okay. <laughs> Marie, okay, Marie's husband has a thing for has a thing against Richard Gere. Well, what's the well? Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. You know, he's not the biggest fan, but my, you want to get Christopher Walken, man. Find me somebody who doesn't like Christopher Walken. That's true. That'd be hard to find. No. The, this, all of these things tie together into the contactee phenomena where, and John Keel talks mm -hmm. about this in the Mothman, in the Mothman, uh, in Mothman prophecies, that UFO contactees were getting telepathic communications, supposedly, from aliens, some of which or aliens, entities, intelligences, whatever you want to call them, 
some of which used the same name, some of which said the same information, some of which gave information to people who had never met, who never could have met, lived across the country from each other, gave them the same name. We're from this, we're from this planet. We're from, we're this many light years away. We're, we're here to warn you about this, whatever. And in some cases, a skeptic like myself can discount those things, you know? I mean, okay, yeah, you're, you're a million light years away. Okay, I'm, I'm sure you are. You know, I mean, everyone, everyone would jump to a number like that, a nice round number. You know, people will, people will give names of things that they think aliens, you know, Klaxar, Zborp, whatever, right? And like... Zborp? I don't know, but you, you know what I'm saying? No, I like where you're going with this. And if Wait, you so- asked, and if you asked ten people to give what what kind of message do you think an alien would tell us, you know, nine out of ten people are going to say something like, you know, stop trying to kill each other, stop trying to nuke yourselves, we come in peace, save the planet, save the planet, crap like mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. stupid liberal tree hugger, crap like that, Marie, tree hugging, and so West Coast elites. But when, but when an alien or when an entity, an intelligence seems to say to 15 different people who have never met mm-hmm. that their name is a Paul and they're from mm-hmm. the planet, I don't even know, Z- Zinkar 7 or something weird, whatever, right? Zinkar something, something, something specific. Yes. It either begins to look like a long ranging conspiracy where all these people are lying to John Keeler, they're all being given information or something real is happening. Something really unexplained or John Keel is lying and making it all up. This so did- book is a part of the, I'm, I'm sorry. I just want to get, I'm going to finish no, no, this point because I think ahead, it's important. Go ahead, go ahead. This book is an import as, as silly as it is presented as terrible as the cover is as, as just, I don't know, positively or i guess cheesy cheesy the drawing mm-hmm. on the cover is as all of that is true this book is i think actually very important for the ufo field because it tells a part of this story it's it's part of the story coming from the the word of mouth coming from the coming from a real person who had these experiences with his wife who believed it enough to spend his life doing it and a person who you're going to find out had a very interesting life that he will underplay in this book. But I mean, this guy was basically a, he was basically 007. It's amazing. He was, but here, so here's my question. Here's my question from John Keel's Mothman prophecies to this book. Are you saying that there are similarities in what the quote unquote aliens were telling them both? I'm saying that there are this this book talks about motifs and ideas and methods and things like that that are now considered almost accepted common knowledge in the UFO field. Canon. And they have become canon because of books mm-hmm. like John Keel's mm-hmm. and because of people who talked about, you know, the non-physical reality of these things and all this weird kind of stuff and whatever. I'm saying that I think this is a this is a guy who helped build this field up and I think is being has been ostracized unfairly. I'm not saying anything about the reality of the book itself. For 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 
as far as I'm concerned, this guy was just having a great time at a McDonald's with his wife. You're going to, you're going to hear, you're going to hear dealer, dear listeners, like 50% of this book happens in a McDonald's. <laughs> McDonald's parking they lot. loved the McDonald's. Best. They loved McDonald's. Well, but again, during the time, if you think about this, cause here's another point highways, especially during the sixties and seventies were just becoming more heavily traversed. Um, and what, oh, yeah. what's on those highways that's, you know, mom and pop eateries are now gone fast food. So I don't doubt that, you know, that the places that they're going to eat the most in all of their illustrative travel would probably be like, would be a fast food place. Like for sure. For sure. So let's, let's get into this. Let's get into it, Marie. Okay. Mm -hmm. So we're going to start here by telling about telling the story of John Maloney. And we're then going to bring in the other characters here. The book really chronicles, the story really chronicles John Maloney and his wife, Phyllis, communicating with a host of different aliens. They actually give a list of the names of the aliens here in the back of the book. Uh, let's, go, let's go through some of them, actually. That might, that might be kind of Ooh. fun. So we have Aiken, Agol, Aguilta, Adida, Amgrat, Androd. Actually, Androd is one that, that does come up in Keel's book, I believe. Oh, really? Atra, same thing, one that I think comes up. Uh, Drendi, Dolia, Deponi. Gidea, Gazal, Dolia, is big. Jalbit, Jopit, Coda, Mieta, Miss, Nifo. They're all from the planet Pochi, or a lot of them are from the planet Pochi, which is interesting. Uh, you got you got Tug, you got Toke Aju, you got Temimet, you got Techi, you got Otto, Anzik, Oiken, Okta, Noto. Mm -hmm. I like mm -hmm. Otto. Otto is the Otto. best one. Otto is a female. They might have just been getting Pochi. Otto through the radio. So. Mm, dear. No, I mean, but again, like. I look at these names of aliens and I sort of, you know, I don't dismiss out of hand. It's like. Let's, for the sake of argument, say these things are true. Right? Like, let's say that they we're in communication with some foreign entity and that entity had to have some sort of identifier. So they knew what to call them. Right. Or sure. Call yeah, her, yeah. Yeah. Right. It's like, what else would that to me? It's like the alien would, you know, drop back and punt in a lot of ways and be like, I've got to come up with some nonsensical thing to tell them that that's what I mean. Even if their mind couldn't comprehend what my actual identity is. It just happened so, to, to land yeah, on was, one real name. How is Beto? Yeah, how is Beto or Ga or Ideen or any of these other things any any more different than like Chris or Marie or anything like yeah, that? Yeah, sure. Right? Sure, sure. So, uh, yeah, I'm with you there. The here's the other part of this too. I think it's important to say this right off mm -hmm. the bat. This story is gonna get funny and weird. This story is is ridiculous in many ways, but the this this guy John Maloney. And his mm -hmm. wife, Phyllis, and even his, his first wife, Virginia, they played an important part in the history of UFOs, a part that you've never heard before. And honestly, I have a lot of I have a lot of love for these characters. I have a lot of love for this guy reading this book. He is a sweet, sincere man. He really loved his wife and they had an amazing time in their later years, traveling around the country looking for alien hotspots. It's it's like the honeymoon I've always wanted. 
Right. So, except so, Katie's like, you yeah, know. No, Katie's in the room, like, shut up. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So, whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So, download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I so I don't want I don't want to make it seem like we're making fun of him or we're we're pick you know this is a funny story. UFO stories often are funny. You, it just comes with the territory. Well, and you know? if you look at it through the lens of what that time was, right? So this was this was written in two thousands about an earlier time period in the 80s, I feel like anytime you're looking back or anytime even now you're looking even further back, there's a certain amount of pastiche with it, right? Like we were saying, they eat it. Yeah. They eat a lot of McDonald's. The A lot of sort of what their descriptors are are a little, um, are, are sort of strange and are not exactly like, heavy literary references or you're not, you know, again, you're not reading, you know, this isn't, you know, it's not like that type of engagement, but when you look at sort of the facts and the consistency of what he's saying, I think that that's, what's the underlying structure. hundred percent. No, I'm, I'm with you there. Yeah. And that's what I think is kind of more interesting. If you strip away everything else, I think that that's what's more, what's most interesting. Okay. So, yes. John Maloney, initially born to a small family, he actually had a younger sister, although not a lot is mentioned about her in the book. And when they were kids, they really moved around a lot. The father, <laughs> it doesn't actually say, and I couldn't find what the father did, other than that he was a, quote, executive. So, there we go. I, yeah. <laughs> kind of like an old school, what'd your dad do? Business? Business. Okay. Sort of Mad Men-esque kind of feel to him. It's yeah, it's, it's interesting. He's an executive of some sort, so he moved he around a lot. Yeah. Moved around a lot. But his area of his area of moving around seemed to center on New York, New Hampshire, Vermont, and Massachusetts, right? He he lived in the New England area. So he eventually finally got some stability in his life. He attended the New Hampton School for Boys in New Hampton, New Hampshire. He did that before college. Seemed to do fine there. There's not really a lot of, you know, there's not a lot of information out there about his time there. And then eventually he he graduated. He moved on to Cornell University. At the time, the College of Agriculture was free. This is pre-World War II. And so it was free if you lived in New York State or were born in New York, something of that sort. So because they had a New York residence, he was able to attend for free. Although in the summers to attend for free, you had to do farm work. So he talks about, you know, he did farm work in in Oregon. He did some farm work in, in the South. It, it just sounds kind of cool. It sounds like the kind of thing I would love to do. Well, yeah, Cornell. <laughs> Besides, they, do they still offer that program? Uh, no, of course not. No. So he, in the middle of his studies, though, he was appended. His class was appended by World War II occurring. And so he went to Cornell until World War II, at which time he decided to join up with the army. He was decided he was drafted. And so he became, he actually volunteered for the ski troopers initially. Now, Marie, 
we were talking crazy. about this off air. You you said you didn't know about the ski troopers. Well, it's not exactly one of the first things that you would think about, you know, when you think about World War Two, in in so far as military actions and and big military history and what happened in World War Two is not like oh, and then you know the hundred and third ski battalion came in and you know it's like you don't hear those stories and so when he opted in for the ski patrol. I was like, what? That's, that's kind of like, that's just strange, right? You hear about Normandy, you hear about like the, you know, storming the beaches of Normandy, but you don't really hear about like anything snowy with skis. See, I actually knew, I knew about the ski troopers because of their, they were actually really important in the resistance of Scandinavian countries against the Nazis. And actually I think in particular Finland, I want to say had some very famous ski troopers. I think there was a sniper uh, who was a ski trooper who like killed something like, I, I don't remember if this is, I, I should have looked this up before we recorded. There's some guy who killed like 300 Nazis or something. Cause he was a sniper and he was, he skied around and just was like the skier of death. Dude, so that's a Tarantino film in the making. I know yeah. it's so amazing. So Anyway, so ski troopers, so he uh, he originally just tried to become a ski trooper. Instead, he was, I guess he was found to have had an aptitude for language. And so he actually was trained in German, in Swedish, in, in uh, kind of the culture, the languages, things like that, so that he could pass as a Swedish national if the Germans tried to invade Sweden. So his his role initially was going to be in a ski trooper thing, but eventually it morphed into him becoming actually a important part or an important potential important part in Swedish resistance against the Nazis. If the Nazis ever took over Sweden. Wow. And like an intelligence, too. Yeah. So he he actually it moved over to become an intelligence service job with the OSS. Now. For those of you that don't know, the OSS is the, it is kind of the beginnings of the CIA. So it's the Office of Strategic Services. It was basically a, a spy organization meant to conduct and uh, conduct espionage and get information and to have soldiers in these areas that were controlled by the enemy. And so his job within the OSS was actually to be both a spy, but also a decoder. So his job was supposed to be. Basically, was supposed to be transporting messages from Sweden and from these these uh, from the Scandinavian countries about German movements and German information, things like that, and then transferring that over to the Allied High Command. So uh, this is actually Maloney talking about his time there. Quote, um, he says, quote, my primary job was to spy on England. Even though she was an ally, America wanted to know what she was up to during her occupation of Norway. We could send messages back to our base in London every other hour. I would code the messages and give them to the radio operator who would transmit them by Morse code to England. But the British were over on the other side of town with their spy operation and on the same radio frequency we were sending on. They would hold down the teletype key to disrupt our messages to London because they knew we were spying on them. The following hour, the British would send their messages back to their base in London. 
We do the same thing. Hold down the key to screw them up, Maloney said with a smile. Then that night, we'd all get together and have a big party. We were all big buddies. End quote. <laughs> ah, war. Isn't that amazing? That's so crazy. Well, first of all, it's sort of, it's insane that you have an ally in a neutral country spying on another ally. Yeah. Right? Like, I'm sure it happens. Of course it happens. But it's sort of, it's strange to hear about it, especially when there's so much else going on. They were just spying and then they, they wouldn't let them communicate. That's also good. And then they'd all get together and just get drunk and destroy. Isn't that Catherine. amazing? Yeah, now, that sounds about right. Now, he then, he then actually, he stayed after the war. So after the war ended, uh, here's another quote about him that he had at the time. And actually, all this information is coming from uh, DonMoreWarTales.com, which is a really, really fascinating website. I'm uh, really happy to give them a shout out. I think it's really a very, very cool very, very cool website about kind of war and the people that fought in them. So this is a quote. So this is, this is a quote from the website. World war two is over, but not for Sergeant John Maloney. He was on his way from Oslo, Norway to London, where he held a quick meeting with his OSS handlers and off he flew to Salzburg, Austria. So this is a quote from John quote. I found the OSS office in a Catholic monastery in Salzburg. The Allies had already chopped Austria into four sections, occupied by the American, English, Russian, and French. Lots was going on over there. It was my job to spy on England, Russia, and the Vatican. Primarily, we were handling the refugee problem. There were a lot of Jewish refugees coming out of Russia-occupied, Russian-occupied Czechoslovakia and Poland. We would send them down to Italy, and they would get up, go by boat to Palestine. We were also on the lookout for German rocket scientists. These were the people we sent to the United States because they had all kinds of valuable intelligence about rocket building. We had a safe house in Salzburg where we hid rocket scientists. I remember one mm. night we had a couple of scientists in the house who wandered outside and got taken by somebody to where captured and were captured by Russian spies who wanted to kidnap them. Immediately word went out to our agents all over the city that the Russians had captured the scientists. Before the night was over, we got them back. The two German rocket experts were delirious. We sent agents into the Vatican. The Vatican was a very powerful international political voice. We sent a Catholic and Protestant spy to check out the Vatican. We would compare the reports of our two spies and write a consolidated report on what they learned. The Vatican was involved in all kinds of things. Some of the top Nazi prisoners escaped to South America after the war with the Vatican's help, he said. By the time I got back home in 1946, I didn't know what country to be loyal to. I didn't want to be loyal to any country. I just wanted world peace, end quote. This mm. guy lived an awesome life. <laughs> wow. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, saying that the Vatican, that the Vatican helped Nazis too. That's, I mean, I mean still relatively incendiary to say that. Yeah. Right? And but, to put that out there. But also relatively spot on. Yeah, I mean, well, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm not like, doubting. I am not doubting. Ridiculous. So, interestingly, he comes back from the war. He is, he is very disillusioned. He's not interested in being part of any one country anymore. And so he becomes, I hesitate to say that he became a pacifist. He more became, I guess, a, a I mean, for lack of a better term, he became a proponent of the New World Order. 
And I don't and I don't mean that and in the ridiculous go. conspiracy mm. way. He I mean likes. I know. I mean that literally in he believed in a a larger world government like the United Nations that would impose earth law basically and uphold standards of human whatever human activity. Yeah. I guess. Well, he's, he's probably so disillusioned with every single government and every yeah. single faction that he's working with, no matter what language they're speaking, they're all sort of not helping any kind of greater good, which is sort of the reality of war, right? I mean, nobody comes out of war or goes into war as the quote unquote right side or the, you know, it's like, that's, it's just a messy, awful you know, and probably very disillusioning place to be, especially World War II, especially, you know, trying to get uh, prisoners of war, Jewish prisoners of war and concentration camp victims out of Russia or out of wherever back into, back into um, some, some nation state. That's insane. Well, also, I mean, it would be hard. I mean, you, you see the horrors of war firsthand. And you see, too, I mean, his job was specifically spying on allies, you know, spying on our friends. So Mm -hmm. it's clear. I think it would be clear to anyone working in that kind of field that the idea of nations being friendly, like peace is just prolonged stalemate. It's not there. There is no there is no peace, really, if there are nations, because eventually you're just going to, it's going to have to happen. Eventually it ha- it happens. It doesn't have to happen, but eventually it'll happen. You know, I think there's a, there's a famous quote that war is the only option when all economic means have been exhausted. Something like that. Anyways. I think you made that one up. I did. I did earlier. I think on an earlier episode. Oh, maybe I did. I'm just maybe. that great. Marie. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. No, but I think, it, but that's interesting. And then, Again, sort of you see this correlation back to to his interest in something that's other than human, right? Yeah. I mean, and let's pretend you don't believe in aliens just for the sake of like, you know, stepping back and, and looking at this as almost like a, you know, a pop psychology view of it. It's like you can see, well, this man had such a disillusioned view of, of humanity and what we do to one another that, of course, he would be looking for something that would answer that right you'd be looking for another civilization yeah he'd be looking for the higher the higher calling that is not religious because he just was also you know watching the vatican sure yeah i, I don't want to live in this planet anymore no okay yeah, i don't i don't doubt it so he actually then he comes back to the united states he attends a couple of colleges in, in various things i actually don't think i think he eventually did graduate but i'm not sure in what uh, it's not really made super duper clear in the book, but anyways, he he eventually joins a small group at the time called the World Federalist Movement or the World Federal Government is what mm. it's called then. The mm-hmm. the group itself is a the group itself is basically a a citizens movement that advocates a global federal system of, of democratic global institutions. So the idea is that the entire world would get together and create a democracy that would govern the entire world. The, the movement itself 
started in 47, 1947, but really got its start, really, really got its start in a meeting at Montreux, okay, which is in Switzerland. It is at this meeting that John Maloney actually got to attend. The, he, he actually was there for the beginnings of this group. He was there in the second meeting of August 1947 in Montreux. 51 organizations from 24 countries came together at this conference that was known as the Conference of the World Movement for World Federal Government. And it ended up concluding with what's known as the Montreux Doctrine or Montreux Doc Declaration, which basically just states, you know, the, the principles of principles of, of world federal government. Okay. So he actually, he actually moved there. He moved to Sweden. It was at the university of Stockholm as part of this, like American, basically an American college within the university of Stockholm. He was actually the student body president there supposedly, and was allowed to kind of go to, to, to formal meetings with, you know, the ambassador to Sweden and all kinds of other stuff. And acted as something of an American representative in Sweden. So him going to this conference was something of a big deal. And it, that, that declaration actually made its way to the UN. And the next year, this group had 150,000 members. Mm. That is intense. That if for something that doesn't, I don't know anything about now, the world <laughs> no. federal government. I mean, that's a little like, Oh, Again, sort of semi-incendiary. Absolutely. Right? So he, and basically for the rest of his life, he was part of political action groups, push groups, stuff like this, specifically looking for world federal government to promote democratic ideals across all nations, stuff like that. Hmm. It is fascinating, though. He finally returns to the United States after Sweden, after doing all this stuff, finishes college, comes back to the United States. And his family is his family unfortunately is broken apart. His his parents have divorced. So he moves to Florida with his with his mother and sister to be near them. And he ends up becoming a journalist. And this is really where he starts his career and how he becomes interested in UFOs. He is a reporter in Florida for a short period of time. He then moves to Binghamton, New York. And in Binghamton, he meets his wife. His first wife, Virginia. All right. Now, Virginia, if John Maloney is an awesome dude, Virginia is an awesome lady. Okay. She was a pilot in the Women's Air Force Service, or uh, which was known as the WASPs. Okay. She, fl she basically was uh, one of the air pilots that would transport or help to ferry bombers and things from airport to airport during the war. Yeah, where women were not flying. Women were not pilots right. in World War II. No, no. It's amazing. Yeah. It's super cool to have her. It's super cool that she actually had this job. And she ended up getting. Do you remember what they say exactly, Marie? It's something like she, she had like a four engine license or something. Oh, my God. It, it Basically, it meant that she could fly every type of aircraft that she had experienced. She had enough hours to fly every type of aircraft available at the time. That's crazy. So she. She also had this time in the war. She had this time in the, you know, the Air Force for, or was there, was there even an Air Force at that time? Mm -hmm. she, she was a pilot during the war. She ended up coming back again, same as John, disenchanted, 
you know, did not think war was the answer anymore and started to basically be part of these same push groups. So John and Virginia get married. They then move to Alaska. She was a airline dispatcher at the time. He, because it is, you know, the 1950s and this is the way America worked, I guess, at the time, he just decided to buy a business in Alaska and made a living that way because that was possible. He didn't have to, you know, no LinkedIn for him. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, and in the book, he just, like, every town he goes to, he's like, maybe I'll be, maybe I'll be a pizza guy in this town. He just buys a pizzeria and he does it. Well, and again, again, the lens that we're looking at this in is it's it is subjective. I mean, are these details really relevant or very important? I think the thing that it shows is that they they had this relatively um, kind of a revolutionary worldview that was very different from being even the counterculture at the time. Right. Like federal federal world government is very different than what was the counterculture. No, you tune in, in, turn on, drop out. In so some, even, in some ways, more are, fringe. Yeah. In some ways, these guys are like the, these are the people that the hippies are like, those guys are weird. These guys are right. Crazy, it's it's right? awesome. Yeah. It is so cool. Marie. And, okay. and they're picking up and they're moving and they're clearly, they don't, they're not, they don't have a sedimentary lifestyle They They can, they have whatever it is that, just allows you to do this, which clearly I have no idea about. No, no, it's amazing. Okay. So they're in Alaska for a short period of time, maybe around two years, something like that. The timeline here gets really fuzzy. It's it's, there is not a lot of information on this guy out there. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's like if you were trying to research, I don't know, an uncle or something, right? It's, it's not, there just isn't a lot out there about a non-famous person before Facebook and Instagram. So eventually, though, they go back to Claremont. And in Claremont, he becomes a reporter again. He is there for some time in Manchester, Claremont, writing for these different papers in the area. They get into a dispute there again because of his political views. And I don't think I mentioned this before. In Florida, initially, he got into a fight because he was very anti-racist. And that did not fly in Florida after World War II at least in that part of Florida. And so he moved back up North to new England, but again, his views kind of got him in some trouble. So then he moved back down to Florida, uh, I guess, try his luck again the second time. And in Florida, it's where they have their first experience with UFOs. The sports reporter of the St. Petersburg independent claims that he's flying over the Gulf of Mexico and something appears before him and, and follows his plane. And so Maloney and his wife are fascinated by this because they know this guy. They know he's a logical, smart person. They know that he's not someone to just make up a story. And clearly he's very affected by this. But neither of them really believe him, but they're interested. They're 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 their attention is is brought to this idea of UFOs. And so, again, after a little bit of time, they move back to New Hampshire. And at this time, Maloney becomes a mutual funds and insurance salesman. So, again, like the fifth job this guy has had in as many years, practically. And at that time, there is a huge 
UFO case in Enfield, New Hampshire, which again causes him to become absolutely fascinated in UFOs. This this is the one that really that really makes him, you know, into it. This is the one that gets him. Yes, and there's actually more on that actual case as well. Yeah. Yeah, go so ahead, Marie. Re- no, I was going to say it's relatively well documented. That's all I was going to say about oh, it. Oh, okay. I have no documentation in front of me. I did do some research on it, though. But it's warrant of, like, it's warrant of its, its, own, its own show. It absolutely is. And we're going to talk about it more. But basically here, this is again from NICAP, uh, and we're going to talk about it here. So, quote, January 15th, 1965, between Wilmot and Enfield, New Hampshire. At 10 p.m., a former Manchester newsman, Mr. Charles Nee Jr., was driving on Route 4A when the radio suddenly stopped, the lights on the car went out, and the engine quit. He lost control. Classic alien. He lost control of the car and pulled on the side of the road, and then heard a loud humming sound like a high-frequency electrical whine. He then opened the car door and stepped out. He looked up and saw a very bright light below the cloud cover at around 2,000 to 5,000 feet altitude, which looked about the size of a flashlight held at arm's length, pointed towards his face. It seemed to hover for a moment, and then it took off to the south, traveling very fast. As the light left and the wine died away, the car's lights and radio came on and the motor started. The whole thing lasted about 15 or 20 seconds. End quote. This story Maloney Classic. hears about, mm-hmm. and he is just absolutely... Him and his wife are hooked. They are they are now forever into this case and into these stories about UFOs. So, what does Maloney do? What do you think, Marie? I just can we just say that I think it's amazing too. Like all the stories, like the beautiful thing about that story is that is that's the er story for any sort of alien anything. It's like the perfect right? story, right? It is. It's the archetype. If there's if there's one canon story, it's you're driving the car very, very late, right? And then the electrical cutout. It's perfect. So I think it's almost tailor-made for somebody to be able to to want to engage more into. I mean, it's just it's it's again, it's it is strikingly similar to the Betty and Barney Hill case. Yes. Right. That happened a, in a few very years. Similar place, in a very, very similar place. Very, very similar location, very similar place. Okay. Maloney reads this story, becomes interested, and he decides, I'm going to go investigate. I want to get involved in this thing. I'm already traveling to Washington to sell some mutual funds and insurance. (laughs) So he decides to stop in to the headquarters of what is known as NICAP. Just a a drop in. NICAP is known as the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena. It was... I would argue the largest UFO research group in the United States from the fifties to maybe around the seventies. And it is one of the foundational parts of the UFO mythos. And Maloney is talking to all of the biggest players. And that is where we are going to pick up next week on alien odyssey. Part two. Excellent. Whoo, Marie. I know. So happy to be telling the story. I'm so excited that we're finally getting to tell the story. Cause like you said, I think that there's, even though it's, even though it's a little cheesy, there's so much to it that deserves, that deserves attention and 
and um, and even more investigation too. Here's the I think part it's interesting. Here's the part that I think is so fascinating is this is a guy who was a literal spy. He was a spy in World War II. He spoke multiple languages. He was there for the beginning of the UFO field. This, to, in my mind, this is the this is the guy you want to be interested in this. Well, and he had his own. I mean, basically, he was in a splinter cell organization that was radicalized even further than the counterculture in the sixties. Well, that's the part. See, that's the part that's of the story. That's the part of the story that I think is I, honestly, I think it's why he is viewed less reliably than other reporters in some ways is that yes, this, this story is going to get, doesn't sound wacky. It might sound kind of wacky at this point. It's getting wackier. Just wait. All right. We haven't even gotten to, you know, the alien that needs the McDonald's parking lot. Cause it's better reception or something like we're not even at that level yet, but it, it mm. this is like this uh, to me, it is the perfect UFO story. This guy was a spy. He comes back dissolution with war and finds aliens. It's amazing. And does he goes, he searches for them. He does. He does. And he finds them. And true love on top of everything else. Oh my goodness. What true love. I know. At the heart, at the heart of it, Marie, we're a romance podcast. We really are. You know what? We love love. If you love love, like we love love, you're going to love our podcast. (laughs) Surefire way to get people to turn it off. All right. (laughs) Exactly. (sighs) Thank you listeners for listening to the mad scientist podcast. I'm your host, Chris Cogswell. I'm Marie Mayhew. She sure is Marie Mayhew. Now, surely Marie Mayhew. Marie. Yeah. We had something interesting to announce this episode. What? We had to mention who got the painting. (gasps) The haunted painting. Who won the haunted painting? I don't know. All I know is we got to get it out of my garage because it is now it's trying to open a portal or something. It's sparking electricity. There's a vortex near it. You know, there's this black acre ooze coming out of the back of the frame. I've been told, you know, by Paul, I either have to donate it or clean it out. But he has to park the Prius in there and he doesn't want he doesn't want it near it. Doesn't want it near it, huh, Marie? Doesn't want near no, it doesn't want it near the Prius. And I'm like, you know what? Forget the Prius, man. Anyways, who won? Interesting. The winner of the painting is Jennifer Taylor. <gasps> Jennifer, congratulations. Jennifer, congratulations. Thank you so much for supporting the show. And I'm gonna get your address from you here soon, and I'm going to then send you the painting. Yes. Yes, we will, will, I will, first of all, I'll wipe it down with some holy water, (laughs) smudge it with some sage, you know, get a little potpourri up in there to make sure it smells nice and fresh. And thank you for your support, Jennifer. Thank you so much. All right, Marie, we did it. Part one. Part one done. Let's get out of here. Night, everybody. Good night. Thank you again, dear listeners, for listening to the Mad Scientist podcast. I have been your host, Chris Cogswell, joined by my co-host, Marie Mayhew. If you'd like to contact the show, please send us an email at themadscientistpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word. You can also follow us on Twitter at Mad Scientist Pod or at Team Giant Squid for Marie. And of course, you can see us on Facebook, 
on Instagram and all over the internet as the Mad Scientist Podcast. And again, our logo is the one with the pumpkin head, so it's easy to see. Mm-hmm. If you've enjoyed the show tonight, please consider supporting us on Patreon, where the money that you give to us will help us to promote this show further, to make it better, and just to spend more time making it. We love doing that. We do love doing that. Our logo was designed by Carrie Shaheen. Our web design is done by Desdemona Howard. And our sound design is done by Jake Cardinal. Thanks again for listening. (laughs) Thank you. This has been a damn it chippy production. Don't you know that you're a grown-up? I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. Alright, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? Right. I've never done it. (laughs) Right.